0: Message, obviously we began last week, called Taking Jesus seriously. And the text that we're looking at as we work our way verse by verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew chapter eight verses eighteen through thirty-four. And as we begin, I want to tell you something that I told you last week. In fact, this is so significant, you ought to write this down somewhere in your notes. No one lives a great life by accident. That's the theme that we need to remember. No one lives a great life by accident. And it's important for us to remember that because this theme of greatness is significant as we go through this part of Matthew's Gospel. As I divide Matthew's Gospel up into different sections, we're in the third section which is Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. And the title that I have for that section is Glimpses of Greatness because all through those chapters we see Jesus doing great things and we see Jesus calling his followers to live a greater life. And it's the calling of his followers to live a greater life that's our, atten- that's our focus in Matthew chapter 8 verses 18 through 34. I talked to you last week And told you there were four things that I see in these verses that oftentimes stand between us, people just like you and me, and embracing the greater life that Jesus calls us to. We talked about the first two last week in verses 18 through 22. The first two things, if you remember, we talked about empty promises and weak excuses empty promises because one day a man came to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus basically looked at him and said, are you sure about that? And then told him, listen, there's no easier, comfortable path when it comes to following me. And then we talked about weak excuses because another man said, I'll follow you, but first let me go and bury my father. But he wasn't, bas- he wasn't saying, give me a couple of days so I can take care of my father's funeral arrangements. He was saying, I'll follow you when my father dies, however long that is from now. I want you to be a priority in my life but you can't be the highest priority in my life right now and jesus basically said that's not how it works and so those are those are things that oftentimes stand between people like you and me and embracing the greater life that jesus calls us to well there's two more things i want to show you today and we've got a lot to talk about so if you got your bibles open to matthew 8 let's go ahead and stand together like we always do for the reading of god's word we stand in reverence and respect for god's word now we're looking today at verses 23 through 34 but for our scripture reading time we're just going to read verses 23 through 27 that's the first event we're going to look at and then when we get to, to the end of that we'll read the next passage the next part of the passage and the next event but you follow along matthew chapter 8 beginning in verse 23 then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him without warning a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat but jesus was sleeping and the disciples went and woke him saying lord save us we're going to drown he replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. All right, there it is. You can be seated. Uh, as I say every week, we always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. I want you to write down next in number three, the third thing that often stands between us and embracing the greater life that Jesus calls to, calls us to, and that's limited faith limited faith. I think this is probably one of the more familiar stories in the Gospels, but as I think about it, in the context of this message, here's what I want you to consider. By the time this event took place, Jesus and the disciples in the boat, Jesus asleep in this furious storm threatening the safety of the disciples, by the time this event took place, Jesus' disciples had already seen him perform several supernatural miracles. Chapter 8 begins with Jesus healing a leper and then healing the centurion's servant and then healing Peter's mother-in-law. Chapter 8 and verse 16 talks about people bringing all the demon-possessed to Jesus and the sick to Jesus and him healing them with just a word. They have already seen Jesus' supernatural power in the face of great need, and yet when they were faced with their own need, they responded with panic and with fear and with doubt. Now... Before we're too hard on the disciples and throw them under the bus, let's just be honest about something this morning. This isn't an unusual response from believers. In fact, let me just ask all of you and those of you listening online a pointed question, and in your heart, honestly, you answer this question. Have you ever had a time in your life where you believe that God was more than able and more than willing to answer prayers and provide help for someone else, but you weren't sure he was able and willing to do it for you? To keep it in the context of the story, have you ever believed that God was active in meeting the needs of other people, but he was asleep in the midst of yours? I think if we're all honest, many of us would have to say yes. I believe that God would do something for someone else. I just wasn't sure he would do it for me. Well, that's what happened to the disciples when the storm came up. And so in panic and fear and doubt, they woke Jesus up and said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. They did it in desperation. And so the bottom line is they demonstrated a limited faith. They'd already seen Jesus perform supernatural miracles in the face of need. And yet they had panic and fear and doubt. There were other ways they could have responded to the storm. They could have spoken to the storm themselves in the name of Jesus. I don't know if it would have worked in that moment, but they could have done that. They could have gotten in the boat and linked arms and said, we're going to ride this storm out together until we get to the other side because we believe that as long as Jesus is in the boat, he's going to protect us. Or they could have just kind of gently reached over and tapped Jesus on the shoulder and said, excuse me. I'm sorry to bother you, wake you up, but we got a little problem, need your help. You know, no fear, no panic, no doubt. Just come a matter of fact, we need some help. But they didn't do any of those. Their faith wasn't strong enough for any of those things, so they panicked. And that's why when Jesus woke up before he calmed the storm, he looked at him and said, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? And here's what we learned: if you want to embrace the greater life that Jesus calls you to, then one of the things you have to do is identify and abandon the things, or the different limits, rather, that you've placed on your faith so that every difficult circumstance that comes along, every trial, every tragedy, doesn't result in your responding with panic and fear and doubt. I was just like all the rest of you, and I was stunned when I woke up on Monday morning and I read about the senseless attack on those innocent people sunday night in las vegas that left 58 people dead and over 500 injured in the aftermath of that kind of a an attack and that kind of violence the inevitable question is always why why did god allow this to happen And for many people, that kind of event, on top of the everyday pain and suffering that plague our lives through sickness and through disease and through abuse and through betrayal and through disappointment, through crime and broken relationships, and you can go on and on. For a lot of people, that kind of event, on top of all these other things, just rocks their faith to the core and paralyzes them when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. So let's talk about that for just a few minutes. Honestly, this is not something that I plan to do. This is not the direction I plan to go in this message, but I think there's an application here. Let me be clear about something from the beginning. When something like that kind of a senseless attack happens and somebody comes to me and they say, Pastor, why, why did this happen? My honest response, first response is, I don't know. I don't know. I believe absolutely and completely in the sovereignty of God and the biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But I've told you before, I don't always understand how God chooses to exercise his sovereignty in the world today. And there are things that happen all the time that leave me scratching my head and wondering why. It's not a doubt with regard to God. It's just an honest reality that sometimes I don't understand. But I also believe, and I believe this strongly, that there are things that we can understand and we can know and we can trust about God at all times, no matter what happens. And I believe that remembering those things can keep us from experiencing a limited faith in the face of things that we don't understand, like evil and suffering and tragedy I've got five of them that I wanna mention to you, and I'm gonna do this really quickly this morning, and I wanna tell you, listen to me close. These five things, they don't come from me. These five things I've borrowed from a great article that was written by a man named Lee Strobel, who is a Christian apologist, who, by the way, will be a guest speaker in our church next year. Write these down. The first one is this. God is not the creator of evil and suffering. God is not the creator of evil and suffering. One of the questions that accompany a tragedy is why did God create a world where evil and tragedy and suffering exist? And I want you to listen to me close because I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is He didn't. That's not the kind of world that God created. You go in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 and you see these words written at the conclusion of God's creation. At the conclusion of God's creation, we read, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. That was the world God created. A world that he could look at and say, it is very good. Someone might say, well, but if that's the case, pastor, then where did this evil come from? Where did suffering come from? Where does this tragedy come from? Well, I want you to listen to what Lee Strobel has written. God has existed from eternity past as the Father, Son, and Spirit together in a relationship of perfect love. So love is the highest value in the universe. And when God decided to create human beings, he wanted us to experience love. But to give us the ability to love, God had to give us free will to decide whether to love or not to love. Why? Because love always involves a choice. If we were programmed to say, I love you, it wouldn't really be love. So in order for us to experience love, God bestowed on us free will. But unfortunately, we humans have abused our free will by rejecting God and walking away from him. And that has resulted in the introduction of two kinds of evil into the world, moral evil and natural evil. That's what Strobel writes. What are those things? What what is moral evil? Moral evil is the pain and the suffering that come because we choose to disobey God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This Moral evil is not the result of what somebody else did wrong. It's the result of what all of us do wrong on some level in our lives. Because Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, evil and suffering and tragedy happen in the world today because when sin entered into the world, it infected every single part of the world. We live in a sinful and fallen world. That's not the world God created in Genesis one thirty one. Natural evil. I'm talking about things like that's, that, that's things like wildfires and earthquakes and hurricanes that have been in the news so much lately. Those kinds of things that cause suffering are also the indirect result of sin being introduced into the world. Because sin didn't just affect people, it affected all of the physical creation. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22 these words, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Listen, creation groans, to use Paul's words, creation groans because the curse of sin fell on all of God's created order, not just on Man. So here's the bottom line. We live in a sinful and a fallen world, and the result of that is evil and suffering and tragedy, oftentimes leaving innocent people or seemingly innocent people the victims. But I want you to remember something because here's the bottom line, at least it's the bottom line for me. I'm not going to try to put words in your mouth. God did not create evil and suffering. Now, did God create the potential, for evil, the potential for evil and suffering to enter the world? The answer to that question is yes, because that was the only way to create the potential for genuine love and genuine goodness. Think of it like this. If you're a parent, there was a point in your life when you, were, you and your spouse were thinking about bringing children into the world, there was a point in your life where you could foresee, at least in some limited sense, that if you, brought your, if you brought children into the world, there was the potential for those children to suffer disappointment, to suffer heartache, and to suffer pain. You knew that there was the potential for those children to cause those same things in your life, to cause you to suffer heartache and disappointment and pain. You even knew there was the potential that you could bring children into the world and one day they would walk away from you completely. I know parents who've lived that reality. Their children have walked away from them completely. But you had those children anyway. Why? Because you also understood that there was potential there for the deepest level of love and joy in your relationship with them. Now that may not be a perfect illustration, but it's certainly an illustration that all of us can understand. God is not the creator of evil and suffering. Evil and suffering are the result of living in a world that's been infected by sin. The second thing I want you to write down is this, though suffering isn't good, God can use it. Though suffering isn't good, God can use it. How does he do that? Well, he does it by fulfilling promises like this one I'm going to put up on the screen from Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Look at these words. In fact, read these words with me, let me hear all of your voices. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, one of the great promises of the Bible. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say God causes evil and suffering, although evil and suffering certainly would be included in the all things that Paul writes about. What Paul does say is that God can bring good even from evil and suffering, from all things, even even, evil and suffering. And notice that Paul doesn't say that we're going to see that good immediately. He doesn't even say that we're going to see that good in our own lifetimes. He just says that God can cause the good to come. My favorite example of the truthfulness of that kind of a promise is found in the life of my favorite Old Testament character, a man named Joseph. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story. It's found in Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50. Joseph was a man who suffered for many, many years deeply as a result of the evil actions of his brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery. But one day after years and years of the deepest level of rejection and suffering and sorrow and grief one day after many years because god was with joseph even in the midst of all that suffering joseph finds himself in a position of great authority where he has the power to save the lives of many people including his family including the same brothers who betrayed him and he does it he saves his family he saves these brothers caused this suffering in his life. And later on, toward the end of his story, he has the opportunity to tell them why. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now honestly, someone might say to me, someone who's here this morning, if they had the opportunity, they might say to me, I can't agree with you, Pastor. I can't, I can't go along with that because there's no way something good can come from my circumstance. The evil was too great. The damage was too extreme. The suffering was too deep. If that's how you feel, I want you to know that I understand that. I understand that. I understand the reality of suffering. I remember when The Newtown, Connecticut shootings happened and those 20 children between the ages of six and seven were gunned down in a classroom at the Sandy Hook Elementary School back in December of 2012. And that left me undone. I'm sure many of you would say the same thing. And I couldn't even bring myself to think about that and think about the loss of those children and think about the grief of those parents for weeks to come without breaking down into tears. How can you make sense of something like that? And I've stood beside people in every single church that I've served who have suffered incredibly because of loss or because of betrayal or because of disappointment or some unfair event in their life. So I understand how difficult it can be to accept the truth, the biblical truth, that God has the ability to bring something good out of something Horrific, but listen again to what Lee Strobel writes. He says, if you doubt God's promise, he's talking about the promise like what we read in Romans eight twenty eight. If you doubt God's promise, listen to what a wise man said to me when I was researching my book, The Case for Faith. God took the very worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe aside, or the death of God on the cross, and turned it into the very best thing that has happened in the history of the universe, the opening up of heaven to all who follow him. So if God can take the very worst circumstance imaginable and turn it into the very best situation possible, can he not take the negative circumstances of your life and create something good from them? I believe that he can, and I believe that he will. I do. Number three, The day is coming when suffering will cease and God will judge evil. Someone might respond to that by saying, well, if God has the power to end evil and suffering, then why didn't he go ahead and do it right now? Why do we have to wake up to another news headline about another tragedy, another senseless act that leaves people suffering in its wake? Well, the answer is just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean that he won't. And the truth is God's story, this is what we understand, God's story isn't finished one of the things that the Bible makes really clear about God is that he is a God of such great love and compassion for the people that he created that he is actually delaying the consummation of history in anticipation that more people will put their faith and their trust in him. Look at these words on the screen from Second Peter 3, 9. Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to righteousness or to repentance, rather. Fourth, our suffering will pale in comparison to what God has in store for his followers. That's not, I, that's not said to minimize pain or to minimize suffering in any way, because I would never try to do that. That's just said to remind us that sometimes we just have to have a long-term perspective about life. In Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, for, notice this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweigh them all, our light and our momentary troubles. Now listen, if you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul, you would ask yourself the question, how could Paul look at what he's experienced in his life and call that light and momentary trouble? Because he suffered incredibly. He he suffered deep levels of persecution in his life, Open your Bible sometime to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Scroll down to about verse 22 where he begins to list all the things that he experienced and went through in his life. There was a time when he was stoned in the city of Lystra. They drug him out of the city and they left him because they thought he was dead. That's how brutally he had been treated. And either he was dead and God rose him to life or he just was so close to death that they thought he was dead but he was able to continue. What Paul is telling us is not that trouble doesn't happen in this world, not that suffering and sorrow and grief and tragedy doesn't happen in this world, but there's a better reward coming. There is. Number five, we decide whether to turn bitter or to turn to God for peace and courage. When tragedy happens, when sorrow happens, when suffering, when evil happens, when suffering happens, we decide, each and every one of us individually, whether to turn bitter or turn to God for peace and courage. One day, Jesus, this is toward the end of his earthly life, Jesus said to his disciples, this is John 16:33. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Now, I've told you before, I don't know if you remember, I've told you before, every time I look at that verse or I hear that verse, I think of two things. I think think of the fact that there are two stories, rather, that are being written in our lives. There's the story that we see and the story that we don't see. The story that we see is captured by Jesus' words when he says, in this world you will have trouble. The story that we don't see is captured by Jesus' words when he says, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And we've got to decide what we're going to put our faith and our trust in. The story that we see or the story that we don't see, the, the one that's being written right in front of us, or the one that will be revealed to us when the time is right. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter five and verse seven that we walk by faith and not by sight. At the end of the day, as Christians, if you're, you can't live a Christian life apart from faith, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you gotta put your faith in the story that you see or the story that's gonna be revealed. Listen, this is the bottom line. Don't let limited faith keep you from fully embracing the life that Jesus calls you to embrace. That's the example that we see with the disciples in the boat. As soon as they'd seen what Jesus could do, they knew firsthand the supernatural power that Jesus had. And yet the first time a difficulty came into their life, they responded with panic and with fear and with doubt. Don't don't follow that example. Difficult circumstances are gonna come into your life. Trials are gonna come into your life You're going to experience in your life the reality of evil and suffering on some level, but you can't respond with panic and fear and doubt. You've got to trust God. You've got to trust Jesus, and you've got to continue to move forward toward Jesus and the life that he calls you to. All right, really quickly, let me give you a fourth thing, and I'm going to have to do this quickly because I spent so much time on number three. Write down these words, fear of change. And listen as I just pick up our text where we left off in verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off and went into town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him. Note this. They pleaded with him to leave their region. Real quickly, there are three things that stand out to me in this story. Number one is the authority of Jesus. These demons recognized Jesus for who he was. They cried out, what do you want with us, son of God? Mark's gospel tells the same story. And it tells that one of the men ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees in front of Jesus and said, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And the words that Mark, or the word rather, that Mark uses for fell on his knees is the Greek word proskuneo, which is oftentimes translated worship because it represents adoration and reverence. It's a term that carries profound awe and respect. And here's the lesson. While demons hate everything about God, they were powerless to do anything but bow down before him when they were in his presence because they recognized his divine authority over all things. The second thing I noticed is that they understood God's ultimate plan because they said to him, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? What does that mean? Well, what that means is these demons knew that God had a divinely appointed time when he would judge and punish them. There's a great verse in James 2, when James is talking about faith and works, he says in James 2:19, you believe that there's one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, here's the question, why would demons shudder? How about because they fully recognize the consequences of rejecting God. The third thing, and this is the one that I wanna mention for just a moment, the third thing that stands out is that when the people in that region heard about what had happened, when those tending the pigs went off and told the people in town about what happened, they came out to Jesus, but they didn't receive him, they pleaded with him to leave. After he sent these demon spirits into this herd of pigs and they became deviled ham and ran down that steep slope into the water, where they drowned, they pleaded with him to leave. Now, some people say this is because they valued the pigs. They, they hated the loss of the pigs and, they, and their priorities were mixed up. They valued the pigs more than the lives of these two demoniacs who had been set free. I don't think that's the case. There's, no, there's nothing in the text that would make us think that's the case. I think they came out and they recognized that they were in the presence of no ordinary man. They were in the presence of God himself, the son of God himself. And they knew that if they had an encounter with him, he would demand that their lives change. It would mean that their lives would change. And they didn't want that. They they had a fear of that change. And so they said, just leave us alone, go away. And listen, this is what happens in the lives of many believers. You you get to a place in your life where you're comfortable with the way things are right now. And you don't want to be stretched. You don't want to change. You don't want your life to become different. And you can't have a personal encounter with Jesus and walk away the same as you were. He doesn't allow it. And so it's the fear of change that keeps a lot of people from embracing the reality of the greater life that jesus offers listen to me i'm going to tell you this again we'll close brian can come no one lives a great life by accident no one becomes a, becomes a great follower or servant of christ by accident you've got to get rid of empty promises and you've got to get rid of weak excuses and you've got to get rid of limited faith and you've got to get rid of a fear of change. And you can do that, or rather if you can do that and embrace Jesus for all that he is and all that he offers, then you can experience the abundant life that he promises. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. What's a simple way to understand that? He said, I've come so that you can have a greater life than what you're experiencing now. But not unless you're willing to change. When my two children were growing up, I used to tell them this all the time, at different stages of their life when they encountered encounter different challenges or had different problems in their life, and I continued to tell this to them when that's the case in their adult lives. If you want your life to change, you need to change. How many of you know people that are waiting around for something to happen on the outside of their life to change their life? They're unhappy with the way things are, but rather than doing anything themselves, they're, they're thinking someone or something, someone's going to come along or something's going to come along. Some unexpected, unforeseen opportunity is going to come along. It's going to change everything about my life. That's not usually the way life works. And if you want your life to change, then you need to change. And if you look at your spiritual life, your life of faith, and you see that it's lacking and it's not all that you want it to be and and you've got got a void there and you've got a longing there in your life and you you feel like something's missing in your life, it's not God's fault. It's not because Jesus is somehow limited. If you want your life to change, you need to change. Maybe the change needs to be giving up empty promises and weak excuses and limited faith and the fear of change and embracing Jesus, everything about him. Completely. I want you to pray with me. Father, thanks for a chance to talk about this. And I just pray now that you would bring honesty and openness.